Good morning, church. It's a privilege to uh, be here with you, to be in this function this morning. I appreciate the opportunity because it causes me to tangle with the word more intently than I might otherwise and to really tune into what God is trying to say through it. Um, So thank you for letting me be here. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for all the ways that you speak to us, uh, even in the weather this morning. Thank you for the stories and teachings that you inspired men and women to write. And we thank you that that's not simply a, a dead record, but that by your spirit the word is living and active. So I ask that what you have for us this morning would be heard, unmitigated, that it would abide and take root in our hearts, and that anything else that is merely of this faulty vessel, anything that's incomplete or unedifying, let it pass and be forgotten. Amen. Amen. The anonymous author of the book of Hebrews talks a lot about faith or faithfulness, stick courage, steadfastness, Tenacity. Grit. I like that word. A recent article in World Magazine celebrated our birthday, the 10th birthday of the Anglican Church in North America. Gives a brief history of the difficult decisions faced by those who sought to be faithful to the word and to the risen, glorified Christ. And of the courage and wisdom of the African Church who came to the rescue. The article is titled, True Grit. Sort of like cowboy Christians. (laughs) I think the writer of Hebrews would like that, would commend it as an ideal for his audience. I think Jesus would like it. And I hope that in the fullness of time, we can look back on this movement, our province, diocese, and our little congregation, we happy few, as people of grit. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's back up. Any number of sermons could arise out of any one of these passages. Uh, So I couldn't just pick one. I'm going to try to deal with all of them. (laughs) (laughs) My hope this morning is to walk through briefly what's, what's happening in each passage and in the context around it and see what common features can be woven together for a word of encouragement and admonition. It's what's on my heart this week, and I I think it is what is in our text this morning, a word of encouragement and a word of warning. Some of us may need one or the other, but I think it's possible for any of us to receive both as sides of the same coin. Of the many mistakes I'm sure we can make when describing our God's nature in relation to us, Perhaps the most common is an oversimplification to one of two extremes. At one end of the spectrum, we've got a meanie. The other, we've got a pushover. I'm sure many of us have been troubled inappropriately by hellfire and brimstone teachings that portray God as a cosmic cop who's all too ready to zap you the moment you think about stepping out of line. 
maybe this is just me, but I've been likewise put off by saccharine reductions of the Most High to a huggy hippie who's only got Pollyannish truisms to speak to us. I love how Brennan Manning expresses his frustration with this sort of reduction of infinite complexity. He says, I want neither a terrorist spirituality that keeps me in a perpetual state of fright about being in right relationship with my Heavenly Father, nor a sappy spirituality that portrays God as such a benign teddy bear that there's no aberrant behavior or desire of mine that he will not condone. I want a relationship with the Abba of Jesus, who is infinitely compassionate with my brokenness, and at the same time, an awesome, incomprehensible, and unwieldy mystery. Or for those of you familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, as Mr. and Mrs. Beaver put it, safe. <laughs> Who said anything about safe? <laughs> of course he isn't safe, but he's good. The fact is, Israel's God is not super happy in this scene from the prophet Jeremiah and in the psalm. And then in our gospel reading, Jesus really throws us for a loop when the Prince of Peace says, I didn't come to bring peace. What, what's going on? Let's start with Jeremiah. For 23 chapters now, the prophet has been taking Israel to task for breaking covenant with their God. They've run after other gods and neglected their call to do justice and practice mercy. And Jeremiah really puts him through the ringer. He employs graphic imagery of adultery and prostitution as a metaphor for their faithlessness. Specifically, the Lord through Jeremiah has beef with the nation's leaders, those who should know better, those who are supposed to be maintaining order in worship and in daily living. They've neglected their call, and the result is rampant injustice. The least of these that are supposed to be provided for are neglected. The widows, orphans, immigrants, neglected or outright swindled, taken advantage of. And worse, everyone seems to think we're doing okay. The prophets go about speaking peace, 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 when there is no peace. On one day, the people of Israel come to worship in the temple of their Lord when yesterday and tomorrow they're robbing their neighbor, oppressing the sojourner and pouring out drink offerings to foreign gods. Some have even gone as far as the abhorrent practice of child sacrifice. And the Lord will not stand for it. I feel bad for Jeremiah. He's got this unpleasant task of announcing that the Lord is going to destroy his own temple and turn the covenant people over to Babylon. But Israel's God loves his people too much to let them get away with breaking covenant. Sometimes this correction is harsh. And yet he's merciful. Throughout Jeremiah, after promising punishment, the Lord says, I will not make a full end of you. And he says, return, faithless Israel. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful. And if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, the temple, 
And if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place. Moreover, the Lord's love and righteous indignation are not at odds with one another, not contradictory. They're pieces of the same coherent picture. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Jeremiah's call is to accuse and warn, but also to speak hope. When the Lord first commissions him, it is to pluck up and break down, destroy and overthrow, and to build and to plant. Likewise, in our psalm, the Lord is dressing down those who should know better, those who are failing to faithfully execute dominion. It's rather a different sort of audience, though. The Bible is full of surprises. I probably don't have to tell most of you that. Many of you here have been reading it far longer than I have been alive in some cases, and probably more faithfully and intently. And I'm sure your testimonies would be much the same. It never gets old. There's always more to discover. I think this is true just on like a basic secular, literary, scholarly level. But then when the Holy Spirit also gets involved, even more infinite horizons. I've been immersed in a surprising study recently, and Psalm 82 is a key part of that. We don't have the time and I don't have the expertise to really get into it. But I think it's got something to say to us, so we'll take a few moments to just scratch the surface. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Now, the NIV Bible I grew up with puts gods in scare quotes, as if to say, well, we all know they're not real gods. You know, there's only one God. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I think the NIV is mistaken in this punctuation, and, and I also think that what the passage is talking about is, is not human judges or leaders. Yes, there's only one supreme uncreated being. There's none like him, not even close, but that capital G God is not the only denizen of the heavenly realm. Like I said, there's a can of fascinating worms cannot or should not be our main focus this morning, but I think it helps to see a, a bigger picture which raises the stakes of our faithfulness or faithlessness. There is one supreme, uncreated being, all-powerful and all-knowing, the source of life, the ruler and judge, the creator God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the father of Jesus, Yahweh is his name. But the scriptural witness, all the New Testament alike, is replete with examples of other spiritual beings, not at all on par with Yahweh, but very different from humans, beings which the Lord created and appointed functions in the ordering of the cosmos. Some of these beings serve faithfully, the messengers of the Lord. Others are in rebellion, our first human rebellion is paralleled by, or it at least alludes to, a spiritual rebellion. It's a bigger picture. It's worse than we thought, but also much better. 
the biblical authors are inclined to see everything that happens in two dimensions. Human activity runs parallel to or overlaps or sometimes collides with spiritual forces. Behind the chaos and injustice of their neighboring nations, behind the idols of money, sex, and military might, Israel's prophets saw very real spiritual powers. Whatever evil men are perpetrating, the biblical perspective is that those deeds are energized by an even more intense evil. When humans give in to evil, individually or corporately, we give in to and become agents of a bigger, dark, not entirely perceptible operation. And this is very much what Jesus has a beat on when he begins his ministry. We would do well to recover some of this sacramental worldview. Now, praise the Lord, we're Anglicans. A little bit further along than some other post-Enlightenment Western traditions. Uh, uh, if nothing else, this might help us to be more gracious in dealing with our neighbor who wrongs us. For as Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So the core conflict is not really about that other person, but an epic battle going on for his soul. I don't mean to say this diminishes our culpability, but I think we need to see this bigger picture to sin, individual and corporate. And in the psalm, the Lord is chastising his non-human servants for failing to exercise proper dominion. To what result? Same as in the prophets, exploitation of the weak, injustice. It is to these poor that are being stomped on. Interpret that broadly, poor it's not just about money. To these poor that Jesus promises good news at the beginning of Luke's account. Quoting from the prophet Isaiah. To the captives, liberty, new sight for the blind and freedom for the oppressed. He himself is the jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. Where the broken power structures, human and otherwise, have failed, Jesus is able and very much wants to establish and maintain justice and righteousness. And we reject this invitation at infinite peril. In the chapter previous to this morning's reading, Jesus has been berating the Pharisees and lawyers, those who ought to know better, those who ought to be faithfully serving the poor, but who have turned to the idol of their own piety and are prophesying lies. He then addresses the people at large, the crowds who have gathered, and tells them in a series of sermonettes and stories to stay awake, pay attention, stay sharp, stop worshiping your stomach, let go of your possessions. Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning, for the stakes are high. And Jesus says he came to cast fire on the earth. Fire functions in a number of different ways throughout the Bible. The presence of the Lord in both all the New Testaments, but also judgment and purification I don't think we have to choose one application for this particular passage. Jesus embodies all of these meanings. He is the most complete manifestation of Yahweh's presence to us, and he brings restorative justice. That's a good thing. 
not necessarily a gentle thing. This sort of wonderful, terrible thing is found all throughout Scripture. The very best things are often also very difficult things. Think of Eustace Scrub in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. When his greed has literally turned him into a dragon, Aslan is gracious enough to restore his former nature. But that involves ripping the scales. Ouch. More wondrous still, Jesus is not only the bringer of the Lord's cleansing fire, but the recipient of the hottest flames that we could not endure. He alludes to this when speaking of his coming baptism, which is not by water. He's already done that. He's, he's alluding to his death, where he bears the brunt of retributive justice that a holy God demands. And the risen Jesus is the only person, both human and divine, the ultimate intersection of the earthly and heavenly realms, who is capable of ministering restorative justice. He is the only being in a position to rectify the wrongs of both the human and spiritual rebellions. This is good news and bad news. The best news for those who follow in his way. The very worst for those who persist in ignoring him. Or worse, Hebrews gets into this, those who turn aside, having once tasted and seen the goodness of this decisive move. Even for those to whom it is good news, there is a word of warning. It's by no means a cheap grace. Jesus made it very explicit to his followers they should expect hardship and adversity. He didn't say, listen, fellas, there's a chance some of this might not go over real well. He said they could expect death. We shouldn't be surprised when following Jesus costs something. Sometimes it costs the things or people that would otherwise be nearest and dearest to us. So he says, wake up, pay attention. Good for you, you can recognize the rain cloud. Will you recognize what is happening in your midst? And will you respond, even if it means forsaking the trappings of power that adorn the lords of the present kingdom, as one commentator puts it? Earlier in Luke's account, the things that hinder people from Christ include wealth, fear, lack of faith, and that old habit of putting oneself first. Well, this language of casting off that which hinders serves well to move our attention to Hebrews. This letter slash sermon has a lot to say to those of us who live in the already but not yet. Jesus has come, the fire's been kindled. But there is, because of Yahweh's mercy in partnering with us and his patience for the exiles, there's work yet to be done, a time of waiting. And we're called to be faithful until the final, ultimate day of the Lord. There seem to be two groups of people within the same community being addressed in this sermon letter. Some are facing persecution and imprisonment because of their faithfulness to Jesus. Others are walking away, perhaps because of these threats. So the discouraged, the author says, hang in there. To the latter group, hey, stick with it. The message is either, come on, or come on. 
Maybe it's both at the same time. Because Jesus is so awesome, we can endure in faith. And because Jesus is so awesome, it is damned folly to reject or ignore him. I mean that literally, son. I didn't just swear in church. The pattern of Hebrews is encouragement coupled with warning. And the warnings make me uncomfortable. I think they're supposed to make us a little uncomfortable, not fearful. There's a difference. But uncomfortable. For is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Read through the book of Hebrews this week and look for this pattern of encouragement and warning. And take stock of which word you most need to hear. Almost done here. Some final remarks. Uh, Hardship is inevitable. Sometimes because we are the poor that Jesus and his Father care so much about. Sometimes we are the ones suffering as victims of injustice due to the human and spiritual mishandling of the cosmos. Sometimes adversity may simply be the cost of discipleship. The faithful disciple will face rejection from a misunderstanding world, sometimes even from those closest to us. Sometimes we may be undergoing the discipline of a perfect father. It may be a rebuke or teaching, but it's always refining, restorative. Because our father loves us too much to get away with breaking covenant. But if we will persist in running after other gods... Now that he's given us not only the law and prophets and restoration from exile, but his own self, the scriptures promise a grave outcome. May we be included in the great catalog of saints begun in Hebrews chapter 11. People of faith, people of whom the world was not worthy, people of grit. Christian cowboys, so that at the last day we might hear, well done, good and faithful. I had another reference to the Chronicles of Narnia in mind, decided to leave it out because three is just too many, but I feel like it's appropriate. This is possible because of faith. Again, Hebrews chapter 11 defines that, and I prefer the King James translation here. Faith is the substance of what is hoped for. Not primarily a reasoning activity or even a a, a trust heart activity. It's both of those two, but a, a taste of that which we long for that enables us to keep going. In the line, the witch in the wardrobe, Narnia has been in winter, deep winter, for years and years and years. And there's good news. Aslan's on the move. That takes a little bit of time. There's still snow on the ground. 
There's the sound almost forgotten of streams once frozen running again. There's crocuses popping up out of the snow. These are tangible substance pieces of evidence that winter won't last forever. That's faith, substance, experience, a taste of what we're waiting for. So, lift up your drooping heads and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is aim may not be put out of joint but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And as the Hebrews author closes his letter, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And God of highest heaven, we pray, occupy our lowly hearts. Own it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. You've loved and purchased us. Help us now to live a life that's dependent on your grace. Keep our hearts and guard our souls from the evils that we face. O great God of highest heaven, be glorified through us. Amen.